Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Eve Runyon, President and CEO of Pro Bono Institute, here with part two of our special edition of the podcast focused on the DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, and how pro bono lawyers can help recipients since the program was rescinded earlier this year. We recently convened a panel of experts for a thought-provoking discussion about the history of the DACA program, how the rescission is impacting DACA recipients, and how pro bono lawyers can help going forward. Brad Phillips of Munger, Tolls, and Olson moderates the discussion with Jesse Gabriel of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, Judy London of Public Counsel, and Christina Yang of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles. We hope you enjoy part two of the conversation, and we encourage you to revisit our earlier podcasts on the DACA program, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. We wanted to turn the sort of opportunities that, the, that have, may exist, have existed, and, and may exist going forward for pro bono engagement by lawyers on DACA-related issues. And I'll kick it off. I mentioned the case, uh, the amicus brief that we did in the case challenging President Obama's expansion of DACA uh, that was brought by various states. Um, and we did that amicus brief on behalf of Californians. We also did a separate amicus brief, um, actually in the in the Fifth Circuit as opposed to the Supreme Court, um, where we we filed a brief on behalf of a vast um, number, over a hundred uh, immigration law scholars around the country, um, countering the arguments that were made by those states that the Obama administration didn't have the authority to enact DACA and that it had failed to comply with the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act in doing so. Uh, and one of the main arguments that we made there, in addition to talking about the, the history of, of deferred action that, that Judy mentioned a little while ago, um, is that we focused on the fact that contrary to, to popular belief and apparently the belief of some of the lawyers, um, DACA does not actually sort of create a group of people who automatically get deferred action without regard to their individual circumstances, uh, which was a key issue with respect to the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. But in fact, as I think um, Christina mentioned, there are, um, it really requires case-by-case determination because there are provisions under DACA that allow uh, someone who might otherwise, might otherwise qualify uh, to be excluded based on things like historical abuse of their visa or the fact that they're a uh, danger to national security or public safety or, uh, it, it, quote, other factors uh, that an immigration official might think disqualified them from receiving DACA benefits. Um, and that was a crucial issue, really, under the, on the Administrative Procedure Act claim, which, uh, unfortunately, you know, never really got resolved finally by the Supreme Court. Um, but that's that's history, so I think I probably ought to let um, Jesse, who's more involved with the current litigation, talk about what's going on now with respect to uh, this administration's effort to rescind DACA. Thanks, Brad. So I um, have had the privilege of, as I mentioned at the beginning, of being involved in two different cases related to DACA, and I guess I'll just take them chronologically and provide a little bit of background on them. So the first was for an individual by the name of Daniel Ramirez Medina. This is uh, somebody who was twice granted DACA, and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, as far as we can tell. ICE came to uh, execute an arrest warrant for another individual. He happened to be there, and he was detained. And we um, we found out about this actually because of public counsel, and I'd be Remiss not to mention the incredible work that, that Judy and her team of public counsel have done and how privileged we've been to work with them. So they, public counsel became aware of, of this situation and we, um, we decided to join with them. Um, after Mr. Ramirez was, um, after his, his, the other individual was arrested, he was questioned by ICE agents, uh, informed them that he had a work permit under DACA. He was nonetheless taken into custody. He was taken down to in the ICE processing facility where they entered his information into a computer. They confirmed that he had passed multiple DHS background checks, that he did, in fact, have DACA. Um, they saw his DACA work authorization card. 
and despite all of this, decided that they were going to continue to detain him. Um, he ended up being detained for more than six weeks. Uh, during that time, the government also initiated removal proceedings against him. And we, uh, along with some co-counsel, which included some professors, um, Larry Tribe from Harvard, Erwin Tremorinsky, who's now the dean of Berkeley, uh, Leah Littman from UC Irvine, and also an attorney, Luis Cortez Romero, who is himself a DACA recipient and an incredible individual. Um, we, 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 we fought the government every step of the way. The government insisted really without any evidence that Mr. Ramirez was a gang member. Um, they, they doubled down on this claim. They sort of slandered his reputation in, in the media. This case gathered, gathered enormous attention in the, uh, in the national and international media because it really was the first case of a DACA recipient being detained notwithstanding their DACA status. Um, we were finally able to get Mr. Ramirez out on bail, and the, and the shocking thing here was that in, in the proceedings in immigration court, the government basically admitted that they had no evidence that he was a threat to public safety or national security. So after engaging in this, you know, putting out press releases and, and issuing statements from the Secretary of Homeland Security calling this, this individual a gang member, they basically conceded when they were in court that they had no evidence to support that. Um, and, and notwithstanding that, notwithstanding that admission, the government has continued to seek Mr. Ramirez's removal and has, um, you know, really treated him in an in extraordinarily unfair fashion, refused to admit that, you know, as, as we think that this was really just a mistake with some officers who were maybe a bit overzealous or, um, you know, who, who knows what was going on there. But the government actually, when we, we filed a lawsuit in federal court, and the government has really advanced some some very extreme arguments. They they, they said that the court um, didn't have jurisdiction to consider this, um, and also that uh, in, in making those arguments that the government really can do whatever it wants. I mean, they really have, have have made some arguments that I think should be very concerning to to anyone who is is thinking about the DACA program, which is that DACA doesn't really mean anything. And they've said that that DACA can be revoked. For any reason or no reason at all, without notice, without process, uh, it doesn't matter if the revocation of DACA is based on a factual mistake or an error or the whim of an immigration official. That and, and it doesn't matter if the government complies with its own internal procedures or not. That that, that they can revoke DACA. And so we, the government, you know, moved to dismiss our complaint, which which brought claims under the Administrative Procedure Act. We're seeking to have Mr. Ramirez's DACA. Um, restored, and we're seeking a declaratory judgment that uh, there are protected liberty and property interests under the due process clause, and so DACA can't be revoked without notice or process. And we just uh, last week received the good news that the, the court agreed with us, that it had jurisdiction, it rejected the government's arguments and, and their motion to dismiss. So that case is going to proceed forward. But I think the, the takeaways for me on that case are um, you know, in this environment, the government is, is just unwilling to admit when it when it makes a mistake and, and the extent to which it's willing to go to to pursue removal proceedings against folks, even if they have DACA and and just really the extreme positions they've taken about what DACA means and, and really what it doesn't mean. You know, I, despite having advertised this program and, and vigorously promoted it and encouraging people to apply for it, they're now taking the position in court that. DACA doesn't really mean anything, and they can put you in removal proceedings, really at their at their discretion and on a whim and without any good, and without any good reason. Um, so that was something that was very concerning to us. I think the other thing to me that is that was really noticeable and, and noteworthy about this litigation is just the involvement of our co-counsel Luis Cortez Romero. Um, as I mentioned, he himself is a DACA recipient, and, and getting to know Luis and getting to work with him. Um, has been just an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, not only is he a really great lawyer and a really sharp guy, but it really just brought into focus for me the types of folks that are, um, you know, have, have, have been able to enjoy the benefits of DACA. And this is a, a young man who was brought here by his parents who, who grew up in this country, who is, um, you know, always uh, wanted to give back after graduating from college. He, went to work as a teacher and, and learned a little bit about the law and decided that he could help people more as a lawyer. Um, his story of, of putting himself through law school is just one that would, would bring a lot of folks to tears. And, you know, this is somebody who, you know, during his 1L year, waited for all of his classmates to finish studying. 
And then after everyone went to bed, he borrowed their books, and, and that was how he put himself through law school, studying late into the night with borrowed books. So just an extraordinary guy with, with an incredible attitude and when, is now a practicing immigration attorney in Washington State. And to me, the extraordinary thing, um, as well as just his, his, his bravery, when we went up there to the hearing in immigration court where we were finally able to get Daniel released on bail, he, it, it, it dawned on me for the first time that the immigration court in Tacoma is inside an ICE detention center. And so this is a young man with DACA status who understands that the government is making an argument that DACA doesn't mean anything and that they can pick people up with DACA and place them into removal proceedings, who day in and day out goes through security and walks into an ICE detention facility, not knowing what could happen when he's in there. And so I, it just to me was just this incredible um, realization of how extraordinary these young people are, how brave they are, how 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 positive they are, and how much they're they they've been able to overcome, and how much they're giving back to our society. So that that to me was a, a big takeaway from the Ramirez case. Um, when the when the government announced that it was terminating the DACA program, we um, again with public counsel decided that we wanted to to challenge this rescission. We identified six individual DACA recipients who were willing to come forward and, and put their names on a complaint and notwithstanding everything that would be associated with that and being out there publicly challenging the administration, we're willing to do that. And so we filed on behalf of, of six individual DACA recipients. We had two folks who are um, teachers in Los Angeles, one in a charter school and one in LAUSD. Um, we have two folks who are one is one's a practicing attorney, and the other is a law student. And then we have a medical student and uh, a young woman who's getting her PhD, who wants to become a therapist. And so there, these are all folks who are who are giving back, who have really ordered their lives around the DACA program. They've made these long-term decisions to buy homes and to enroll in medical school and take out student loans and do all of these things that they were encouraged to do in reliance on the program. And now the, the, the rug has just been pulled out from under them. And so our litigation advances a number of, of statutory, constitutional, and equitable claims. Again, constitutional claims under the Due Process Clause involving the government's termination of the program and also some arguments you know, primarily under the Administrative Procedure Act about the government's revocation of DACA and how it failed to, to comply with the Administrative Procedure Act. And what's been noticeable in this litigation, which has been moving at a really fast and furious pace, is that the government really maintains that its justification for the rescission of DACA is 100% based on this purported litigation risk. So you know what after the um, after the the government decided to rescind DAPA um, they received a letter from a number of states attorneys general who had challenged the expansion of DACA who said that they were going to amend their complaint in in Texas to challenge the DACA program itself and i think what's notable about this is that there were approximately two-thirds of the state attorneys general who challenged the DAPA program and the expansion of DACA did not put their name on this uh, this letter to the government saying that they were going to challenge DACA. And so it was really a much smaller group of states that were willing to do this. And the government, you know, just decided that it was going to roll over. And, you know, at least that's the story that they're that they're telling people publicly. But in the you know, in the limited amount of time that we've been able to uh, be involved in this case and the discovery we've gotten suggests that is very far from the story. The individual who wrote the, the, the rescission memo testified under oath in his deposition that litigation risk would be the silliest and stupidest way to um, or, or reason to, to make any kind of decision. Um, and so it's really, I think most people understand and suspect and if you look at the Attorney General's comments when he announced the rescission of DACA, in which he, you know, advanced a number of various policy justifications, that there's a lot more going on here than this purported litigation risk. So we, you know, in our in our filings before the court have have alleged that a lot of this is is just pretextual. And so we are now at a stage in the litigation where the government has filed in a motion to dismiss. We've concurrently filed um, a motion for preliminary relief, asking the court to preserve the status quo and leave DOC in place until the, uh, the, in, until our lawsuits re re resolved. We're in the middle of, of briefing those issues and, 
And I should mention that our litigation in the Northern District of California, we are, um, it's, it's five separate lawsuits. So it's the lawsuit that we've brought. Um, there's a lawsuit from the state of California and several other states. There's a lawsuit on behalf of the University of California. Uh, another lawsuit that was brought by the city of, of San Jose and then a lawsuit brought by the County of Santa Clara and a labor union. And so we've all been working together. Our cases haven't formally been consolidated, but we're working together to brief these issues and to, um, and to, and to explain to the court why the rescission of the DACA program is, is both illegal and unconstitutional. Great. Thanks, Jesse. Am, am I right that at least some of the arguments that the government is making in defense of the rescission of DACA are in fact um, inconsistent with the inconsistent with the arguments that were made by the those who challenged the expansion of DACA. Yeah, I mean the government has really tied itself in 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 knots here. Um, they've uh, you know they'll, they'll for for various purposes say that this is all about this is broad and programmatic, or actually this is just in you know all about particular individuals. Um, they haven't really explained uh, why why they why they made this sudden decision to um, to, to rescind DACA. If it was really about litigation risk, you know, as, as you may recall, at the beginning of the of the Trump administration, only a few months ago, they made a decision to um, there was an executive order to eliminate all of the you know a whole range of immigration programs, but they specifically preserved DACA. They specifically carved it out, um, and now only a few months later have decided all of a sudden that it's um, that DACA is, is illegal, or at least there's a litigation risk that a court would would strike it down. Um, they you know haven't really discussed the fact that the Office of Legal Counsel during the Obama administration issued an opinion finding that, that DACA was an appropriate exercise of prosecutorial discretion, consistent with this long history of prosecutorial discretion that, that Judy described and well within the executive branch's authority. So the, the government has made a lot of arguments that I think have left people scratching their head, and I, and I hope, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, that's a lot of what we're trying to illustrate for the court is, is just the inconsistencies in a lot of their arguments and the positions they've taken and really – their, their rationale doesn't hold up and um, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, you know, when you, when you actually start to examine this program and the tremendous benefits that it provides to the country, to, um, to our military, to our citizens, to the government, the findings that the government has made, the representations that it's made to people about the program, that this sudden switch just doesn't make much sense. Thanks, Jesse. Judy or, or Christina, does one of you um, want to talk a little bit maybe about what's being done in terms of pro bono work on behalf of individual DACA recipients or applicants? Sure. So there was a huge push by the legal community to help as many people as possible renew their DACA status before the October 5th deadline and in the president's rescission order. Um, there was a time frame set out, which was you know, ludicrous on its face, to give uh, the hundreds of thousands of people this 30-day window to access the legal assistance needed to complete a renewal application. So one barrier is legal assistance by this October 5th, but another barrier was the $495 filing fee. And yep. really the the legal community pulled together and as well as the philanthropic community and, and did an extraordinary push to get as many people through that window renewed as possible. But, um, you know, we don't think this is lawful, but that rescission order essentially has already terminated DACA benefits for anyone who had to renew prior to September 5th. So there's already a, a segment of the DACA population with expired DACA work permits, those folks who had a work permit that expired before this, this date of September 5th are out. Um, so that's many thousands of people right now have lost the protection. Um, going forward, uh, a, lot of, a lot is up in the air. Uh, no, no pressure on our wonderful litigation team, but folks are waiting to see whether this rescission order, um, you know, survives the court challenges. 
but in terms of individual work, we're going to see more and more need for pro bonos. We're particularly concerned with the thousands of DACA recipients who have final removal orders. When immigration detains and seeks to deport someone with a final removal order, here in California, that individual can be tossed into Mexico within two or three hours. It's that quick, because once you have a removal order, you essentially have had your process, and without without a lawyer acting very quickly, you're not going to be able to challenge that order and stop the train from, from moving and, and putting you quickly out of the country. And, and not to interrupt, that, but, but are, are a lot of those removal orders, orders that were entered um, in absentia without the presence of the DACA recipient? A very significant percentage were entered in absentia. And if you think about the DACA population, you had to be under 31 um, in 2012 to, to, to be eligible for DACA. So most DACA recipients who have removal orders, and it's, you know, maybe as high as 10 or 15 percent of the DACA population, had those removal orders entered in absentia when they were children. And what that means is that they're, they're, in most circumstances, there is a winning legal argument that those orders are invalid and should be rescinded. And really what's standing uh, in front of a DACA recipient's ability to lift that removal order is access to counsel. And I should just, uh, you know, want to make a point that, that is important to keep in mind. Um, it's been super gratifying to see that uh, the term DACA is now probably in the Webster's Dictionary, that, that now people on the street have heard of this term DACA. Um, and there are very good reasons for, for really resourcing the fight to keep DACA. But DACA recipients have parents and they have siblings, and there's a whole undocumented population now being targeted for enforcement in much the, the way that Daniel Ramirez was through, frankly, a, a, a a very severe breakdown of the rule of law, and only 14% of immigrant detainees ever access counsel. Uh, people are five times more likely to win their case if they have counsel. So Daniel Ramirez not only shows us how willing the government was to violate its own policies um, and the Constitution, but also what happens when you bring in a good legal team. So we are, I think there is an opportunity for people to get involved, for pro bono lawyers to take on the defense of DACA recipients with final orders and anyone who is an immigrant who has a final order because that is easy picking for ICE. In terms of detention and deportation, they do not need the cooperation of local and state actors to enforce against someone with a final order. Um, So that really, I think, is is the priority in terms of how advocates see the problem is to train pro bonos and figure out ways to connect them to individuals. Um, you know, again, in terms of DACA recipients with final orders, some of them have already lost their DACA. Obviously, the majority of them will lose their, their protection on March 5th unless we have a favorable court decision, which we're hoping for. There are other issues arising out of the rescission order. So right now we're challenging the ability of Homeland Security to establish an immigrant's removability by introducing into evidence the DACA application. Um, This is a very significant issue because with or without DACA, we're increasingly going to see ICE trying to deport people who exercise their right to remain silent by introducing admissions made in the DACA application. So there are a lot of um, tangent- there, there are a lot of related issues that are going to trickle trickle into the court system and make their way up to the federal court of appeals. Um, and it's going to be very important to have a fair amount of collaboration um, on these cases and a strategy to to get some good law and to move the law forward. Yeah, absolutely, Judy. This is Christina. Um, we, um, within the last year, have really expanded, um, unfortunately, um, the removal defense and deportation defense area um, of our work. Um, and we currently only have one um, staff attorney who um, focuses solely on deportation defense, and she spends a lot of her time um, out in various detention facilities, um, such as the one in Adelanto, which is north of San Bernardino, north of Victorville, um, and uh, about 75% of the clients she sees are um, Asian American or Pacific Islander, um, mostly Southeast Asian um, in background. 
And I think, as Judy mentioned, we're certainly seeing um, an increased need for pro bono assistance in that area, and we're still trying to, I think, figure out um, how to best um, use um, our existing pro bono partners in this area. Um, we haven't historically um, had as much pro bono engagement um, in terms of um, deportation defense specifically. Um, so we're still um, exploring ways to um, get folks trained appropriately, um, help our sole staff attorney um, build some capacity so that she can bring on um, more pro bono attorneys to, to assist her in working with individual clients. Um, I mean, we did recently um, get some additional funding to hire a senior staff attorney in this area of work, and so our hope is in the first half of 2018 that we'll be able to really um, expand the number of cases that we place with pro bonos and also just um, generally get folks acclimated to the idea of working on, on one of these cases, um, which can, you know, take take longer than your sort of standard T visa or, or U visa case that I think um, many firms are used to doing with us. Um, it's certainly a, a different ball of wax and can take some different twists and turns. Um, and so we're definitely looking to shore up our partnerships in that area. Great. Thanks, Christina. I, I, one question I guess I had was, have people seen already evidence that, that a lot of this population is if I can use the expression going back in the shadows and maybe like kids not showing up at school, people not not seeking out health care um, and so on as much as they did before yeah. this? Sadly, uh, it was easy to identify this trend at the, the clinics we had to meet the, the October 5th renewal deadline, um, as well as just our own colleagues and friends. So we have a colleague here who's one of our, you know, most, beloved employees who already dropped out of college but wanting to maximize his income before his work permit goes away. Mm -hmm. um, and at the DACA clinic, we saw many, many young people who had until recently been in college and then faced with the real prospect that within months or a year, their work permits would expire without the ability to continue with a work permit, had pulled out of school to work as much as they can and try to put money away. Um, it's getting more and more difficult to get people to participate in litigation, to do media work. Um, and again, um, you know, what has been so effective in the immigration advocacy nationwide has been the willingness and the courage of undocumented youth to go to Congress and to essentially come out of the shadows and tell their stories. And I think, you know, in some ways this has been more important than the court battles for really for this country and for voters to see the faces of their neighbors um, who who are undocumented. But it's getting harder and harder to um, to find people that, that want to do that and to take those risks. We're also seeing people afraid of retaliation against their family members. So we're even seeing people afraid to file for asylum or some other remedy, for instance, a U visa, because they're fearful that ICE will go after their undocumented relative. Um, so the the response and um, it, it has definitely been rapid and severe, um, and that's another area where um, advocates are trying to get out into communities and offer know your rights presentations. But again. Um, I think the people living with the fear of deportation every day know best what, what they need is a lawyer. Um, you know, it's really a time where people understand that without a lawyer and really with the sort of uh, very serious and egregious violations that we're seeing from our government, um, suddenly uh, having a lawyer is, is very important and the immigrant community understands that. That's actually the, the great segue to the next topic we wanted to talk about, which is what's going on in terms of legislation and other, um, you know, policy advocacy around this problem. Maybe, Christina, can you give us an overview of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within the um, last several months, there's, of course, um, because of all the conversation around DACA, there's also been um, pressure exerted um, on on Congress to to take take some action to protect um, what I think most folks uh, know as the dreamer population, and so there are um, currently a number of um, different bills sort of percolating, um, and they all sort of um, take a different tack I think um, in terms of um, 
providing relief um, to the dreamer population. And so um, there's lots of different um, uh, details here, so I'll do my best to provide a, a quick overview. Um, but the, the most bipartisan um, bill in terms of the um, support that it has is um, – uh, still known as the uh, DREAM Act, and that was um, introduced back in July of this year um, by uh, folks um, both on the Republican and the Democrat side. Um, and this provides a um, three-step uh, path to citizenship um, through um, having undocumented youth um, obtain first an initial conditional permanent resident status um, that could be effective um, for up to eight years, and there are um, various criteria um, as far as who would be eligible um, to actually obtain that initial, um, what's known as a CPR status. Um, and after maintaining the CPR status, individuals would then become eligible um, for a lawful permanent resident status um, and a green card. Um, and once the uh, green card is received, then they um, become eligible to um, take the pathway to citizenship, which is about five years later. Um, and there, uh, there's also a uh, second act known as the RAC Act. It's the Recognizing America's Children Act. Uh, and this is um, co-sponsored mostly by Republicans as well as one Democrat. And it's similar in structure to the DREAM Act, but um, more limited in the sense that there are some fairly strict um, education requirements set around obtaining CPR status and the green card, um, and it would, um, uh, folks have analyzed the bill, um, believe it ultimately would cover fewer folks than the proposed DREAM Act, um, and it does set a 10-year path um, to citizenship. Um, the Migration Policy Institute estimates that while about 3.3 million people would initially be eligible under this current version of the DREAM Act, um, there would only be about 2.5 million that would be eligible under the RAC Act. Uh, there's also uh, the Succeed Act, which is being put forth by um, a few different Republicans in the Senate. Um, and this is somewhat similar to the RAC Act, but it has the most restrictive um, of the eligibility requirements. Um, includes very narrow age limits, uh, severe exclusions um, for um, relatively minor crimes, and some um, very stringent education and work requirements. Um, and some folks believe it also undermines uh, some uh, due, due process as well. Um, and so um, I think generally immigration rights advocates believe that, that the SUCCEED Act is probably the least desirable. Um, and there's also finally um, the American HOPE Act, known um, as the HOPE Act, which is has been introduced by um, a Democrat and is supported by over 150 Democrats. Um, this covers a very, fairly large number of folks, um, including those who arrived more recently. Uh, there's also some pro-immigrant legislation here in California that's passed recently, um, just this fall, that we at Advancing Justice have been very happy to have helped pass. Um, and there's several different bills, but I'll just provide some highlights quickly um, for listeners. Um, the first is SB 74, which is the California Values Act. And this um, specifically ensures that local and state law enforcement resources aren't being used for federal immigration enforcement. Um, and in other words, this will help ensure that the state's public facilities like schools and libraries and hospitals and courthouses, they remain accessible to members in the community regardless of their immigration status. Um, and Advancing Justice, we're, um, now that the bill has passed, we're focused on uh, making sure implementation goes smoothly next year. Um, and that involves um, reaching out to law enforcement and providing some toolkits that outline to them what their responsibilities are and sort of monitoring whether or not they're um, uh, following what the bill requires as far as not um, supporting federal immigration enforcement directly. Um, we also have SB 31, the California Religious Freedom Act, which recently passed, and that um, ties back to um, a lot of the um, activity we've seen around a quote-unquote Muslim registry at the federal level. And what this bill does is prohibit state and local agencies from, from providing federal authorities with uh, personally identifiable information regarding religious affiliation if it's being used to compile a uh, database um, like the Muslim registry. 
Um, and we also have AB 699, the Safe Schools for Immigrant Students Act, and this limits collection of information about the immigration status of students in public schools, and therefore um, we think we'll really do a lot to ensure um, access to public education for everybody in the state. And so I think in general, um, although we're not sure what will happen on the federal level yet with the DREAM Act, um, where it's very encouraging, I think, here in California to, to see that, that the state is um, uh, very supportive of the immigrant community and is going to continue to do its best to, to fight against what might be some um, unfriendly federal policies from above. And I think most more, more recently, there has also been um, some scuttlebutt, if you will, um, that there has been um, some, some, some pressure being exerted by the Democrats um, around um, the, the government's need to pass a spending bill at 2017 year end, um, using that as leverage um, to get some protection for DACA recipients um, passed. And so the hope is, you know, since this spending bill is a must-pass to, you know, keep the government running, as it were, that they will be able to include some sort of protections for DACA recipients um, in this year-end back and forth. Um, and so that would hopefully um, take place, but that remains to be seen in December, I think. What, if anything, do you think that, um, you know, in particular private lawyers out there can do to help with respect to any of the legislative action? Um, well, I think um, as far as our um, immigration policy advocates work here, um, one of our immigration rights um, advocates, he is a DACA recipient himself. Um, his name is Anthony Nung, and he is Filipino. He's um, been working in this area for about five or six years now, and um, came from the Philippines at age 12. Um, he um, was shared with me that um, he, along with a um, coalition um, of various APR organizations working in this area, um, part of a, a roundtable advocating for a, a Clean Dream Act, um, they're really hoping that um, whatever is passed, whether it's one of the bills that I just described or perhaps something um, completely different, um, there um, won't be any provisions um, built in that would, um, you know, negatively impact um, the current immigration system or, you know, perhaps um, persecute um, their parents um, or other folks that aren't, you know, fitting the um, dreamer narrative, as it were. And I think they're really looking for folks to help them support that advocacy and, and lobbying um, to keep this um, keep this idea of a Clean Dream Act um, visible um, as Congress continues to, to move forward, um, hopefully in the right direction. Um, this is Judy, and just to add some ideas to, to that, uh, we really need to keep the advocacy going and, and not lose steam. And in terms of private lawyers who want just like a, a quick thing to do, uh, phone calls matter. And I think one of the easiest ways to know who to direct calls to is to go to the website of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, known as AILA. So it's A-I-L-A dot org. And they have a great advocacy page that says Take Action Now, and it's really simple. And within, you know, three minutes, you can identify exactly who you should call and urge for the passage of a clean uh, a clean dream act. And in addition to that, um, public statements by corporate clients have become increasingly important, and a lot of um, major businesses put out statements when President Trump rescinded DACA, um, and those kinds of statements picked up a lot of media, and I think lawyers are often in a position to engage their clients about these issues. There are also a lot of clients that you'll find have a large number of DACA youth employed, and they're eager to find ways to get involved in the advocacy just as a business matter to make sure that they can keep their employees. Is there, and maybe Judy, I don't know whether you know here, but are there other, is there other potential litigation coming down the road? Um, you talked about representing individual clients, but I wondered whether there are sort of specific issues that you see getting litigated in the near, in the near term beyond what we've already talked about sort of generally about the recession itself. 
I mentioned the issue of how the information provided by a DACA recipient can be used, and I think that is going to arise in, in a number of different ways in both the, the impact cases as well as individual removal proceedings. Um, right. It, basically a situation where the person's been, I don't want to use the word too derogatorily, but enticed into providing the government with all this information about themselves in order to get deferred action and then have that information used against them to deport them. Right. And what about, uh, Christina, maybe you have some thoughts about what is this, what's your situation does this pose for people's jobs and so on? Thanks for asking that question, Brad. Um, certainly the question of um, employment has been um, definitely um, foremost in folks' minds when thinking about um, DACA being terminated um, because the work authorization um, benefit is such a huge part of what's been important to community members who've been able to take advantage of the DACA program. Um, and reaching back um, as far as about a, a year ago after um, President Trump was elected, um, folks in the nonprofit sector who have worked on immigrant rights issues and are familiar with um, uh, DACA-serving populations um, began thinking about um, what were some steps we could take to support uh, community members if, in fact, the DACA program was terminated um, at some point down the line. Um, and unfortunately, um, as we discussed earlier, um, we, we did see that day come to pass um, just this past September, a couple months ago. Um, and so um, at the beginning of this year, um, in January, February, um, there was sort of an ad hoc working group of various nonprofits, including Advancing Justice LA, um, Public Council, um, Milk, Educators for Fair Consideration, and Democracies at Work Institute, um, uh, among many others, um, who began thinking about um, not only ways that DACA recipients could continue to earn income without the DACA work authorization, um, but also looking at some employer-facing issues. Um, as both Judy and I mentioned um, earlier, uh, there are various nonprofits that have DACA recipients um, on staff and have had them on staff for the last several years. So just thinking about how employers could potentially um, continue to support DACA beneficiaries even if they didn't have work authorization. Um, and also looking at things like um, independent um, contractor positions, um, just sort of creative solutions to um, the work authorization piece of DACA um, going away in the near future. And um, the idea of setting up uh, DACA recipient uh, LLCs and worker co-ops uh, came to mind to the group earlier this year because They've been used for years already, um, even reaching back to before the DACA program came into being, um, and have had immigrant uh, worker members. Um, there are various um, grocery worker co-ops, for example, or janitorial worker co-ops that have been in place for many, many years now. And so the thought was if there was a way to use that model and um, deploy it for um, DACA recipients, um, who would have to be folks with more of an entrepreneurial mindset um, who would be open to um, generating income through through a small business, um, essentially. Um, and this is workable because um, members of an LLC uh, co-op could earn income through that entity um, as an owner member and not actually be considered a quote-unquote employee because um, otherwise, as an employee, of course, um, that individual would be subject um, to needing uh, work authorization. Um, and so this this project um, certainly is still um, nascent in that there's some different challenges that we're facing. Um, it's sort of uncharted territory. Though co-ops have been um, with me immigrant members have been around for a long time. It's the first time that um, everyone's putting on their thinking caps and thinking about um, DACA recipients specifically as members. And certainly, I think in the current climate, we're seeing where the federal government is. Um, employing some much harsher immigration enforcement tactics than we've seen in the past. Um, we're also concerned about um, any potential immigration-related enforcement consequences for potential customers and clients of any such LLC co-op that has DACA recipient members. Um, we've also been thinking about um, finding pro bono support for setting up these entities. Um, and one thing that's been um, challenging is that um, the worker co-op is a sort of um, different creature, um, if you will, than 
Um, the typical large firm um, who does corporate transactional work um, has experience with. And so most large firms, uh, the attorneys don't have experience um, in the co-op space and certainly not with this particular um, population. And so expertise has been um, something that we're looking at given that this is a pretty specialized niche. Um, and so I certainly encourage, um, if there's anyone listening to this podcast who, who does in fact have experience um, forming co-ops um, involving immigrant workers to, to please reach out to us and let us know. Um, we've been working on, on that particular piece of the puzzle recently as well. Um, we're hoping down the line that um, we can set up um, LLC co-ops for um, groups of DACA recipients potentially, um, also involving uh, potentially other immigrants who aren't DACA recipients necessarily. Um, and there is, in fact, a um, planned potential pilot that um, Democracies at Work Institute is uh, potentially getting off the ground um, in the Long Beach area. And so we're um, looking for um, community members who are DACA recipients who might be a good fit for this pilot um, just to see if it'll work and what are some of the issues that we still have to, to work through. Um, and we're, of course, also working on identifying potential customers and clients for that uh, co-op pilot as well. Um, so it's certainly a very robust area that the working group is um, exploring, and we're hoping that it'll end up being a viable option for at least some of the community members that um, we have served through DACA. Thanks. I just wanted to comment. One of the one of the big points that we made in the brief that we filed on behalf of California business entities and other groups in the in the case uh, Texas versus U.S. that challenged President Obama's expansion of DACA. One of the big points we made there was to rebut the myth that employment of undocumented immigrants hurts other workers in the United States and hurts the economy. And really the, the view is I think that it's exactly the opposite is the case that um, undocumented immigrants typically take work that other native workers don't want to take um, and that undocumented workers do because they really aren't able to find anything else and that they, you know, increase economic output as a result and, in fact, increase uh, the, the real wages of the native workers. Um, and so I think, I think it's important to, to rebut that, I think, fairly commonly held, you know, myth about um, this group of people really, you know, hurting other workers or hurting the economy. Um, maybe we could turn, um, if we could, to sort of uh, the educational sector. And I don't know, Jesse, if you have thoughts. Um, I mean, I know the University of California uh, is very concerned about the effect of rescinding DACA uh, on it, and I, maybe you have some specific thoughts about that and what may what may happen going forward there. Yeah, I mean, I... I... You know, I can't speak for the university because it's not my client, but I have been able to read some of their pleadings and their declarations and, and other things. And I think that, you know, these folks have made a tremendous contribution to the University of California, um, you know, other the, the CSU system and, and the, um, you know, other educational groups and institutions are have, have submitted declarations and amicus briefs in support of our litigation challenging the rescission. We had a declaration from uh, one of the board members in LAUSD, and I think at, at, at every level of the educational system, these folks are, are making an enormous contribution. They're bringing in really important perspectives into the classroom and into laboratories and into discussions and really contributing in the same way that they're doing throughout um, our, our society. And the flip side of that is also that a lot, the UC system and, and it's the, in the same way that businesses have, have, has made a tremendous investment in a lot of these folks. They've decided to, you know, admit them to their medical schools and to their law schools. And I think we all know how precious that space is and how hard it is to, to get into those institutions and the, the, just the extraordinary investment that, um, that these academic institutions are making in, in these young people. And so, you know, they, they made these investments in reliance on the government's promises and representations about DACA and understanding that, you know, getting a medical degree or some of these other degrees is, is more than a two-year endeavor. Um, so I think that there has really um, just been an incredible outpouring of, of support and concern from the education community, from academia, and, and also from, from the business community, frankly. I mean, just an extraordinary number of, of 
um, businesses and, and business organizations and some of the most innovative companies in California and in the, in the world, frankly, have, have come out really strongly in support of DACA. And there was actually a letter that was sent to President Trump before the rescission was announced by some of the leading business executives in, in the United States. And they, they made the argument that this is actually part of America's competitive advantage that these people bring special skills and cultural understandings and language and, um, you know, they're all, all these incredible attrib- attributes and knowledge that, that they have and that these are really important both in the classroom and in the laboratory and in the, in the business world and for these innovative companies. So, you know, again, I think it really underscores a lot of what you were saying, Brad, about the broader benefits of, of this program and this this argument that somehow DACA hurts people or that immigration hurts people, I think is it just the, the data does not bear that out. I think in many ways that the good news is that, uh, you know, from where I sit, we've, to a large extent, we've won the war in terms of public opinion. I think if there was a, a vote today among voters nationally, there would be overwhelming support for a path to citizenship for for all DACA recipients. Um, the problem is that what's happening in terms of federal policy does not appear to to be rational and have any connection to what um, what the public sentiment is. And so to encourage people to remain engaged because this has been a long struggle, it may be longer depending on what happens in the courts. The issue with higher education, it's not so much that you can't go to school if you lose DACA. You can. Certainly in California, you will continue to have that opportunity and to to be recognized as a resident for purposes of benefiting from lower tuition costs for residency. The problem is people will lose decent-paying jobs, and they will not be able to go to school because they won't have the money that's required to live um, and to pay the tuition that's required. So... I do think there's going to be a real necessity um, for those that, that really want to engage with this, this cause but maybe do not have um, the time to to engage in, in huge litigation. This, this opportunity to engage, and, and whether that's making phone calls or working to create a fund to benefit undocumented students that, that – students could draw on in the event that we do um, not see a solution in the near future. Um, there are plenty of ways that people can be involved um, aside from filing a lawsuit, although we encourage the filing of lawsuits too. <laughs> but the engagement is really important right now. I, this is this is Jesse. I just want to tag on one thing to what um, Judy said, which is all right, which is the most recent public opinion polling I've seen shows that an overwhelming majority of Americans support a path to citizenship for DACA recipients, and that includes a majority of Republican voters. So I think this is an issue where there has been a breakdown in the political process, and it really, frankly, is it's crazy that we don't we haven't the Congress hasn't dealt with this issue and, and dealt with it in the right way. Well, that's great. Any other thoughts before we conclude about either concerns going forward or additional ways in which people might get involved in these issues? Well, this is just more of an observation. We had DACA clinics running on on weekends before this final deadline for renewal, and it's really the first time I've seen large numbers of DACA youth um, so moved by basically these volunteer efforts of private lawyers who were coming down to public counsel. Some had called ahead and asked how they could help. Some just showed up. But it was quite astonishing to see the emotional impact it had um, you know, these, these young people really weren't used to, uh, seeing people outside their communities come down and say, we've got your back. We really want to be here for you. So this is really more, you know, any, anything anyone does on behalf of, of immigrant kids and particularly the DACA, the DACA population right now, um, it really translates into, you know, more than just an application being filed. It really, um, helps people in the crossfire right now uh, feel feel courageous about moving forward. So I, on behalf of public counsel, we're extraordinarily grateful for the efforts of the legal community and just urge people to keep it up. Uh, that's a great point, Judy. Um, and I think um, as far as from where Advancing Justice LA sits, um, 
we are definitely very focused on on supporting and getting members of the um, API community um, out um, who may have been um, worried about coming out of the shadows before. Um, it's been difficult historically for us to to reach the API community on this issue. I think you know generally um, uh, the the issues of undocumented immigrants are are seen more as something that belongs to the Latino community, even though. Um, research and statistics show that there are quite a number of API immigrants that are actually undocumented, um, and we think it's as many as one in seven in, in the U.S. who's actually undocumented now. And so there's really quite a, a large population that has benefited from DACA, and thanks to advocates like um, my colleague Anthony Nung, we've been really working on pushing that message out, and I totally um, agree with Judy that it's been really heartwarming to see um, the support um, from the legal community and from others in the APA professional community um, since the termination of the program was announced. Um, we've gotten a lot of messages of support um, from folks in the community who would like to um, do whatever they can to to help um, help help the government move in, in the right direction. Um, and so um, a huge thanks to those in the private sector who've been supporting us on this. Well, on that note, I just want to say that I, I am in the private sector and have been for my entire career, but probably about the most satisfying work I've ever done has been in, in the immigration area, pro bono representing the interests of immigrants. And I, and I will say that one could hardly find a more, uh, a more, a group more deserving of your pro bono assistance than people who were brought to the United States when they were children um, unlawfully, uh, but through no fault of their own, and have been here and have built families or, and have jobs and are in our schools with others and contributing to the economy and generally contributing to the welfare of the country, frankly. Uh, hard to find a more deserving group um, for your pro bono assistance uh, because it is hard for them and, and to find lawyers, but absolutely crucial as, as Judy and Christina were saying earlier, absolutely crucial for them to, to have a lawyer. The difference the difference between staying and not staying is may well turn on, on whether they have a lawyer or not. This is Jesse. I just want to underscore and, and agree 100% with everything you said, Brad. I think that's exactly right. I think for me personally, this has been among the most satisfying work that I've done as a lawyer. I mean, it's just been such a privilege to be part of it, and the clients are so extraordinary and so deserving of representation, and you, you really do feel like you have an opportunity to to make a difference in, in someone's life and in the life of this very deserving population. And I also just want to give the flip side of what Judy and Christina said, which is just as a, a lawyer in private practice, it's been so incredible to watch the extraordinary work that, that firms like Public Counsel and uh, advancing justice and others are doing and just to see in these in these really I guess we could call them complicated times their their willingness to step up and, and protect the rule of law and the constitution and the, the basic humanity of these groups so I have to say as a for, for all the folks out there who are thinking about ways to get involved getting in touch with with groups like public counsel is is a really good way to to make an impact I echo that wholeheartedly and I would also say that to the extent people are Worried about their lack of expertise, I can assure you you couldn't have more lack of expertise than I did when I first started doing some immigration work. And the people who do this full time, uh, you know, just do a fabulous job of providing the the backdrop support that you need to do it and do it do it right. So I encourage people not to be um, overly nervous about getting in and, and diving in and helping people. Thank you all Thank so you. much for your Thank time you. and really great thoughts. Many thanks to Brad, Jesse, Judy, and Christina for making time to share their knowledge and insights into the DACA program. We at TBI look forward to supporting our pro bono partners as they continue to advance access to justice for immigrants. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. We would love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.